you know, our time here is limited. Life is short. Go out there and live magically and work hard. And, you know, don't worry about your situation today. Experience this planet and experience life and make a difference. Welcome to Star of the Doubts. I'm your host, Jared Easley. Joining us from Maui, Hawaii, aloha, Kamanzi Constable. Aloha, Jared. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to talk to our guest. And I just had like two cups of coffee, so I'm a little wired. All right. Well, our guest today is none other than Ken Dunn. Ken is the CEO of Next Century Publishing. He is an author, international speaker, world traveler, and an all-around good guy. So, Ken, it is an honor to have you. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks a lot, Jared. It's great to be here with both of you dudes. Uh, I wish I was strung out on coffee in Maui right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a tough life. (laughs) Hold on. Hold on, Ken. Hold on. What are you trying to pull here? Can you tell us where you're at right now? I tell you what, I'm having a tough time here. I'm in uh, Cabo San Lucas at the Sheraton Resort. And this morning, my wife and I just played uh, Cabo del Sol, the ocean course. One of the It's the 97th course, the best 97th best course in the world to play. Wow. So I'm so, just coming off a, ga- a game of golf. So do you feel Kamanzi, bad you- <laughs> for him? <here? laughs> well, no, I don't now that I know that. But uh, Kamazi, have you been to Cabo? I have not. I've not been to Mexico at all. All right. Well, I've been to Cabo, and so I'm sitting there. Uh, I would actually say I'm a little bit jealous of Ken right now. So <laughs> good for you, Ken. All right. So Ken, we always ask this question, and you're not immune. You're going to get it too. What's the best concert you've ever been to? Oh man, that's a tough one. You know, back in uh, 2011, I got front row seats for my wife and I to see. Uh, I know this might sound a little goofy, but uh, Billy Joel and Elton John. Oh, I would go to that. And uh, what was really cool, Billy Joel was, uh, you know, this was the last time they toured together. And it was just a few years ago. And at the beginning of the show, uh, this old fat guy gets on stage with a cup in his hand, a coffee mug. And he sits down and he looks like he's cleaning the stage. Then he sits down and he starts playing and it's unbelievable. And after the first two lines of the song, he stops, looks at the crowd and says, uh, yeah, Billy couldn't make it. I'm his dad. (laughs) He kept playing. It was unbelievable. But uh, I'm a big Billy Joel fan. Was Billy Joel actually there, or was that a joke? No, that was him. He's just looking a little traveled. Oh, okay. Fair enough. <laughs> traveled. That's a good word. <laughs> so, um, Ken, do you like Taylor Swift? Yeah. You know what? I, I appreciate anybody who's a musician. <laughs> That's the correct answer on this show. Ken, do you, do you know my history with Taylor Swift, Ken? I do. Oh, Ken, this is going to be relevant for you, okay, because you don't know this. So, Ken, I'm speaking at this conference called the Reader's Legacy Awards and Writers Conference. You may be familiar with this. I do know that one. What you may not be familiar with is I'm flying in a little early for that conference, and then I'm flying from Vegas to Cleveland to attend the Taylor Swift concert. (laughs) Oh, goodness. That's commitment. Wow. That's a true story, Ken. Ken, can we still be friends? Well, I'm glad to hear that I'm at least getting you to Las Vegas for our event first. (laughs) We allow harsh judgment on this uh, podcast, Ken. There you go. (laughs) Now, moving on to something the listeners will actually care about. Ken, you have a very interesting and unique story, and I'm familiar with it, but the Star of the Doubts listeners aren't. Could you give us just like the Reader's Digest version of your story? Yeah, so I um, grew up in Halifax, Nova Scotia when I was 18 years old in high school. In my graduating year, I didn't graduate. <laughs> I was voted most likely to go to jail by my uh, friends. <laughs> I, I, 
I decided from that I was going to get into policing. And I spent uh, 14 years in investigative policing in Canada. I did everything from undercover drug work, where I posed as a high school student and bought drugs right on to surveillance. And I was on a SWAT team for three years. And by the time I was 28, I was one of the chief interrogators in a uh, police department of over a million people up in Ottawa, Canada. And um, I thought I was going to be a cop the rest of my life. But then my uh, wife and I gave birth to our son, Matthew, and I decided instantly I didn't want to be a cop anymore. I went on to ask a buddy of mine for some thoughts. He was the son of the owner of a major insurance company, and he gave me a book. He said, I don't know. My dad told me to read this. This book was the first one he ever told me to read, and it was Og Mandino's book, The Greatest Salesman in the World. And that book blew me away. When I read it, I realized that the skills that I had used to have over 16, well, to have 16 people confess to murders as an interrogator were the exact same skills that the greatest salespeople in the world, according to Og, possessed. And so I uh, I went back to my friend and said, okay, I get it. I'm a sales guy. What should I do? And he suggested I start a mortgage company. And so I did. In three years, we funded over $300 million in mortgages. I quit my job in policing. I paid off all my debts. And um, gosh, just three years out after I started, I was my company was acquired by a major competitor. And so I had went from being a cop and broke to being financially free three years later. I went on to uh, I got into direct selling for a while because a buddy of mine forced me to, if you will. And I uh, started traveling all over the world and teaching people about the sales skills that I think I had perfected and was making so much money with. And I made over $10 million in 10 years. I was in direct selling. And during that time, I wrote four books on sales and prospecting. And those books have sold quarter of a million copies. But after my first book, I kind of got shystered by uh, an online publisher, and it really pissed me off. I invested over $80,000 in getting a book published and you know, some marketing guru saying you could build a website and have millions of people look at the website and buy books. Because I, I got screwed, the book was launched with over 200 spelling errors in it, and it flopped. I went back and learned how to publish books and did you know, published all my books myself started my own publishing company. It's growing like crazy. We're so proud of what we're doing. We uh, moved to Las Vegas on November 1st, 2013. We've got 25 people that work in offices in Las Vegas, Toronto, and Panama City, Panama. And uh, we're doing things different in the publishing industry, helping a lot of people. All right, Ken, there's a lot of people listening to this podcast who are well-intentioned and they have the positive mindset, but they are you several years back when you were that policeman, right? They're saying, hey, I, I know I've got some skills, but I'm trying to figure out what that next step is to kind of have, a, have that breakthrough. So what encouragement would you offer to that person who's listening, who is well-intentioned and who's making steps, but they want to have that breakthrough? Yeah, I'm just going to say, I'll just say it straight. It sounds like it's a bit of the theme you guys have going here. There's no such thing as a bloody breakthrough. First and foremost, it, breakthroughs don't happen. You make them happen. Right. If somebody wants something more in their lives or wants more for themselves in their lives, it's going to take unadulterated determination. You have to first decide what you want to be good at and then put your blinders on, get an amazing mentor, study the art, and go out and make a boatload of mistakes. And there's just no easy way around it. You just got to work. So, Ken, with all that you've accomplished, and it's a lot of stuff, wow, I knew your story, but every time I hear it, I'm very impressed. How do you stay focused? Like, 
what do you know you should be focused on next? Because I, I know for me, and Jared and I have had this conversation in this podcast, sometimes I feel like, okay, what should I be doing now? So how do you decide what to focus on? Well, it was really easy for me. I come up with these ideas that are just so massive that they never end. And so, you know, my 10-year goal is to make an impact, a significant impact in the publishing industry. And so I guess the simple way to say that is that if your goal and your vision is big enough, it will keep you focused. If it's the right vision, it'll just keep you awake at night. And if you create a kind of a step-by-step process or goals, if you will, a short, a medium, and a long-term goal, it not only keeps you focused, but it becomes your litmus test. So, you know, I have a 10-year is I'm going to make a dramatic impact in the publishing industry. And then when I reverse engineer that goal, at five years, my website, readerslegacy.com, will be one of the, the largest book retailers on the planet. And we'll be helping millions of authors. Then if I have a a year goal, it's to launch readerslegacy.com. And so I set this up last year and my 10-year goal is still on the radar, but I've got 10 years to go there. So I know what my goal is now. It's how do I stop myself from getting, you know, defocused? And it's really simple. That 10-year goal becomes the litmus test. So anything new that I'm coming up with or thinking about, because as entrepreneurs, we all have a very bad case of AD. We can be distracted by and we get Whenever I get a new idea, I say, is that going to bring me closer to my 10-year goal? And if it doesn't, I discard it. I don't even let it get into my mind. Because we, it, there's tons of amazing ideas out there. The reason most amazing ideas never come to fruition is that the people whose ideas they are don't know how to stay focused. All right. So, Ken, you had success with your first business. What was it about publishing that compelled you to go in that direction? You know, I had a really bad experience with my first book. And of course, for so many of us, our first book is the most important one. And a lot of times it's the typical story of my life and how I'm different and what I learned. So I'm not saying it was a great book or not. But, you know, once it was written, I went to the the publishing industry, to the internet, and I tried to find a good publisher to help me. And I found a charlatan. I found a I hate to say it because it probably wasn't their intention, but I got really screwed by somebody. And the book meant so much to me. I was going to donate a bunch of the money to uh, ALS research. My dad died of Lou Gehrig's disease at 54. It just, you know, it, it became such a big deal to me that I had to go out and figure out the publishing industry. And from there, I just, I launched my own company to publish my own book. And then as the book started to do well, and I wrote a second book, then friends and family started asking me for help with their books, realized that there was a a real opportunity there. Ken, being a publisher and going through that yourself, what are some mistakes that you typically see authors making that prevents them from getting consistent book sales? Oh, number one biggest mistake, Kamanzi, it's rushing. I see this all the time. Somebody goes to write a book and they get it finished and all they can think about is getting it out the door as fast as humanly possible. You know, they don't have it properly edited. They don't have it properly proofread. They get some friend who's got some literature degree from school to uh, be their editor and they don't understand that just because they have a degree doesn't mean they're good at all with editing or even writing for that matter. And they um, design their cover themselves without any idea of what makes a book and a cover saleable. And they just rush it. They slap it onto an Amazon account. They don't do any pre-launch marketing. And the book just becomes another one of the 900,000 books that are published every year that are crap. 
And that's the biggest thing I would say if, if somebody was asking me, what advice can you give to somebody who's thinking of publishing a book? It would be find an expert partner and take your time and do it the right way. All right. So Ken, this podcast has over 200 episodes and there's just unbelievable takeaways over the last two years from all the amazing guests that have been on the show. And one desire is to compile that into a framework and put that out as a book. If this were you, how would you approach that? Yeah, that's fantastic. So what I would do is get all 200 of those podcasts converted into a document. So get them transcribed. And then I would go find somebody that is an expert in books. And I would get them to do some research without telling them at all what your intent was or what your thoughts or beliefs were. I would give them all of that written documentation. And I would say, I want you to compile this for me. But I want you to come up with a list of the the top 15 things that you find in this book that all of these experts share in common. And I don't want you just to make a list of the things, but I want you to give me examples from all of the experts and the stories that prove those things that you found. And then I'd, I'd wait until that person came back to me. And chances are, if you found the right person to do this, you'd be sitting on an amazing book. It's see that what people have to understand today is that books that sell are not just they're not the books that most people think sell. It's not this story of, you know, first there was the beginning and then there was the end. People like nonfiction books that sell are books that are compelling, that give people marching orders and use real life examples of other people. One of my top authors and I launched a program called writeassailablebook.com. We actually travel all over North America and do free writing seminars, 90-minute writing seminars, actually teaching people for free how to write a book that actually sells, a nonfiction book that sells. And it's amazing a lot of the stuff that we see when we're talking to authors when they're out there. But the biggest thing is just to get somebody else involved right away to help you compile that data. And uh, Ken, there is a lot of hype and a lot of kind of standard stuff that's thrown out there in the book marketing world. Do you come across a lot of that as a CEO? Oh my gosh, every day I'm being pitched by somebody who says their book is the next, you know, it's going to change millions of people's lives. And yeah, there is so much hype out there. Now, having said that, though, I am a strong believer that every book has a reader. And people who love books read on average eight to 10 books a year. And so, you know, you can get around the hype, but you're not going to do well. A book that is hyped up is not going to sell well unless the fundamentals are covered, unless the author knows the three C's. And what are the three C's? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I'm waiting with bated breath. No, look, I've sold 250,000 copies of my personal books. And my next book coming up, The Greatest Prospector in the World, is going to be the best book ever. And and of course, this is the type of stuff we're going to be focusing on at the Reader's Legacy Writers Conference in Las Vegas, June 4th to 7th. But if somebody wants to sell a lot of copies of books, I mean, enormous, disgusting amounts of books, then you have to understand it's just about the three C's. If you have the three C's nailed, then you'll get it down perfectly. The first one is the content. What's written in the book has to be compelling. It has to be written at exceptional value. I paid $10,000 just for the editing on my next book after it was written. And, you know, Kamanzi, I think you've already read a copy of it. If not, shame on me for not getting it to you. But I've had The Greatest Prospector reviewed by dozens of New York Times bestselling authors, and they're all blown away by it. I've got nine blurbs on the back cover of that book that are all by New York Times bestselling nonfiction authors. 
And the reason the content is so important, uh, people are losing track of it in this stupid age of uh, online marketing and you know convincing everybody that everything sells. The reason content is important is that if the book reads amazingly well, if it's been edited properly, then once it gets beyond your influence, then it'll be shared with other people just because it's a good book. And those are the only books that sell millions of copies. Anybody with a you know, with a one trick pony can go out and sell 100,000 copies of a book today. Now, actually, let me just say that again. That's a bad statement to make. That's just not fair. Even selling 100,000 copies is a remarkable ordeal. Anybody can sell 1,000 copies of a book. That's the right thing to say. Can do it just by good marketing. But if you want to sell hundreds of thousands or millions of books, you've got to get a great editor to help you, and you've got to make that story one that, that is a page turner. You guys know what I mean by that. You read a really great book, then you can't stop reading it. You turn pages and before you know it, you've lost hours and that's content. The second thing that is incredibly important is the cover, the second C. If you don't have a killer cover, you know the old saying, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. Your book, like every other book, if you're lucky and you work with somebody as good as Next Century Publishing, you're going to have your book in major bookstores. But then the fight only begins because you're on a shelf with 400 other books. Your cover has to blow people away. And there are really specific algorithms that we understand in the publishing space about making book covers work. Now, I'm not going to tell you them on this podcast. I want you to call me. I'll tell you those secrets after you're working with me. But you've got to have a killer cover. And then, of course, the third one, and Kamanzi, you know this. And Jared, you guys know this better than anybody. The third C is community. You've got to have a following. And if you don't have a following, it's one of the things that my company focuses on for nonfiction authors. We will delay the launch of a book for a year or more so that we can take the time to build the author a proper following. You've got to have thousands and thousands of people following you on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And you've got to have a great killer website where you're adding value. So it's about the three C's. If you nail the three C's, then you'll do good as an author. Ken, could the fourth C be Cabo? (laughs) Totally, dude. Absolutely. (laughs) Fair enough. All right. So, Ken, we know traveling is important to you. So let's just go there for a little bit. What what are some of the best countries that you visited and, uh, you know, something you learned there? Oh, my goodness gracious. Uh Okay, well, I'll say Panama is up there at the top of them. I've been to Panama a dozen times now. Obviously, we have a company down there. Our publishing company owns a subsidiary down in Panama where we do all of our tech development. We're building this mammoth readerslegacy.com website now with a, a team of tech people in Panama. What have I learned from Panama is that you can work hard and play hard at the same time. Panamanian people are vibrant, intelligent people that really, they do put in a good day's work, but they also know how to enjoy their lives. I think the country that's impacted me the most is the Philippines. I can't, don't know how many times I've been there. Look, this is a tough call, Jared. I've, I've been in 50 countries speaking, traveling, sure. but... Filipino people are are amazing that what they've been through, the standard of living over there, you know, the average income of a Filipino is about 400 bucks a month, but they live like kings, even in the middle class and the lower class. And so it's an incredible country. And Filipinos just teach me how to have fun. So Ken, you've told us openly that you had done well with multi-level marketing. You had hit the $10 million mark. 
I know that Next Century, from the interview that I did with you on Entrepreneur, Next Century has done 2.1 million, I believe, in 2014 was the number. Those are numbers that I think a lot of us probably can't comprehend in our mind. What does money mean to you, Ken? What does it do for your life? How does it have financial freedom? What's your view of money? Money to me means a 7 a.m. round of golf with my wife on one of the top golf courses in the world in Cabo San Lucas on Monday morning. Boom. <laughs> so, so freedom. <laughs> yeah. No, look, you, I don't, you know, I, I've gone through different phases of my life. When I got bought out from my mortgage company and I started making all this crazy money in network marketing, I one point owned six Porsches and I have a big house in Canada and I've gone past all of that. Money just gives you choices. It is a great goal not for the sake of just accumulating money, but for the things that you can do with it. It gives your mind the ability to think when you're not stuck in the mire worrying about paying bills. And it's a wonderful, wonderful goal to obtain it. Like I loathe the people that say money isn't everything. I just, I think that those people are just so used to not having money that they've resigned themselves to say that. I'll, I'll, I'll agree with them to this degree. Money isn't everything, but it's right up there with oxygen. And when you, when you have money, it gives you the ability to make choices in your life and to pursue things for passion, not for wealth. Ken, let's talk about Reader's Legacy, because there's going to be plenty of people listening to this thing like, I'm not familiar with that, but they should be. So let's talk about what it is and why. Yeah, thanks for that. So Reader's Legacy was, look, I owe my life to books. I don't know exactly how much money my family's made, but it's tens of millions of dollars. And it's all because of the books I've read. And I know that it's the same for everybody that feels that way about their books. They're just, it's a crucial part of your life. Look, I've read over a thousand books. They're in my library at home and my office. And whenever I have friends that are in my house, they invite themselves right into my home office. They sit in front of the library, they pull the books off the shelf, and they want to see what I talk about on stage. You see, when I read books, I don't just read them. I destroy them. I dog ear and double dog ear and highlight with four markers. And it's just incredible. And so I have a thousand books that look like that. And uh, I was sitting at home in my office August of 2011, and my business partner, Rod Larvey, sent me an email. It was an article from the New York Times. August of 11 was the first month that more books had been sold online than off. And everybody was predicting the world would change. Most of the uh, experts were saying that by... 2020, over 80% of books would be digital. And that's what the article said. And it made me sad because I have a love affair with my books, my physical books. I don't read ebooks. I, I know that sounds odd considering I own a big publishing company. But so when I saw that article, I looked at my library and I became really sad. I said, well, if that really does occur, then that affair, that intimate experience that somebody has with their personal book collection is going to disappear. Look, I know it's not just me. For me, my books are my legacy. It's what's made me all the money I've made. It's what I've learned and put in my head. And for most that love books, it's the same way. It's a reader's legacy. And so it just instantly came to me. I said, what if I could create this magical online environment where I could open an account on a website and I could build a virtual version of library? It looks like a social media page, all the stuff you'd expect to see. But then there's a library there with empty shelves. And I grab the smartphone and I scan the barcode of any book I've read or I type in the name of it in the search feature. And because that website has a link to back-end book distributors, it has a database of over 20 million of the best in the world. And when I search the name, the book appears, I say, add to my library, and it's on the bookshelf. And I could literally create a virtual version of every book I've ever read 
Now, the pages, they're not the books, they're advertorial pages. So every book in the world has a page. I can click on a page, open it up, and there's a picture of the author. There's other books by the author. There's a video or a trailer video, whatever it is. And I can add my own personal comments, what I learned about the book when I read it or what I liked about it. So imagine if we could do this for everybody. Every book in the world has a page. Anybody who loves books has a page. They can all build their virtual libraries and they can connect. You know, I follow you, Jared, and you follow me. And uh, anytime you follow somebody new, anytime you add a book, anytime you make a comment about a book, I get notifications. So one day I'm on my smartphone and I get a notification that you just added a new book to your library. I've never heard of it, but you and I love to read the exact same type of books. So I'm intrigued. So I click on the link. I go to that book page and instantly I see that the book already has 15,000 fans. And it surprises me because I've never heard of it because everybody who adds the book to their library becomes a fan of it. Then I see the author and I see other books by the author and I I say, wait a minute, I, I read that book. Oh, it's the same guy. So now I'm being stimulated by the information. I watch a really kick butt trailer video and then I go into the general feed and I see your comments and thousands of other comments by people. I am naturally brought to the point that I want to own that book. And then I said, okay, well, if it's going to be all that, let's make it a store. Let's figure out how Amazon sells so many books and let's launch it the same way. And so when this launches in 30 days, it's going to have over 20 million books in it. And if, a, if an author is self-published and doesn't have their books in bookstores, then they can add their own book page and we can sell the book and they can fulfill it and ship it to them themselves. Let's give every author in the world a page and let's let authors build followings. And, you know, every social media channel out there is trying to limit what you can do with people that follow you. So let's take the handcuffs off. And if somebody builds a following of 20,000 people, let's let them market to the 20,000 people. Let's create this magical environment where people who love books and write books and publish books can all communicate together. And uh, let's promote books to the world. And so that website, it's taken two years to build it. It's built on Python. It's the same platform as that Facebook is built on. And there's over 100 people in the publishing industry in the beta right now, and the reviews are just unbelievable. A guy named Joe Wickert, who is a publishing industry blogger, he's a titan in the publishing industry. I love his comment. He says, reader's legacy is to Goodreads. Goodreads, by the way, is a little website, 50 million users a month that was bought by Amazon three years ago for $300 million. He says, reader's legacy is to Goodreads as Facebook was to MySpace. And um, it's just unbelievable. Readerslegacy.com is, is a website that is a chance for people who love books to build a virtual version of the books that have helped their lives and then to communicate and co-live with other people that love books as much as they do. Ken, you described that very well. Could you hit on a little bit about what the Writers' Conference is about? Yeah, so obviously when this website launches on June 4th, it will be instantly one of the top five online bookstores in the world. It's going to have over 20 million books in it. And so in order to celebrate, the mission statement of Reader's Legacy is to change the way people write, read, and experience books. And it's everything about that. We're going to be very philanthropic. We're going to donate 5% of our revenue to causes that are related to the book world. And we're going to give people a chance to come to us every year and pitch us on why we should fund their causes. You know, we're talking literacy in Africa and some of the biggest challenges that affect the book world around the world. Every year, we're going to do an, an annual celebration and review 
of Reader's Legacy and, and all the good it's doing in the world. It's called the Reader's Legacy Choice Awards and Writers Conference. It's a very elite level book awards event where, I mean, the trophies are awesome. It looks like Atlas's cousin, you know, Atlas with the world on his shoulder. This guy has got three books on his shoulders. He's carrying the weight of the reading world on his shoulders. And um, the top selling books on readersleg.com will receive these awards every year. And we're also going to invite in some of the greatest speakers in the literary world to teach the next generation of readers and, and of writers. And, and so the first annual event is happening June 4th to 7th in Las Vegas, Nevada, uh, readerslegacywritersconference.com. And uh, it's going to be an amazing event. It's going to be about 300 people. And then on Saturday night after the black tie five course dinner and uh, award ceremony, I'm going to launch officially this website to the world. Incredible. Ken, we're going to start to wrap up here. Who is doing something that interests you? Well, that's a profound statement. Right now, I can see my wife down by the pool and she's reading a book and sipping a margarita. Does that qualify? (laughs) (laughs) That that is interesting. (laughs) Uh, No, I'll tell you what. My first book I wrote back in 08 was called Being the Change. I had gone through a pretty rocky period in my life, transitioning from being an arrogant, pompous cop to being an entrepreneur. And it wasn't an easy change. And what I decided to do to help myself was to study the seven world leaders who I admired the most. Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Steve Jobs, Mother Teresa, Mahatma Gandhi, John F. Kennedy, and Pierre Trudeau. And from them, I found a list of 10 attributes in their personalities that they shared in common. And I've, I've built my whole life around those 10 qualities. And I'm very, you know, so I, I really admire those seven entrepreneurs more than anybody. The, the guy that I'm paying the closest attention to these days is Bill Gates. What he's doing at this stage of his life now is it's an unbelieving. It's inspiring to me. He's so philanthropic, looking for ways to fix some of the world's problems, investing heavily in those things that really are impacting the world and the challenges in the world the most. So I I would say at the top of that list is Bill Gates. And uh, my favorite thing about Bill Gates is that every time he travels, he takes at least 10 books with him. And once a year at Christmas time, he takes a picture of himself standing in front of his personal book collection, holding his favorite seven books from the previous year. So that's Bill Gates. And what's really inspired me about Gates is at this stage of his life, how much of himself he's giving back to the world. Ken, for the listeners that have been digging this, they want to find out more. Where is the best place for them to connect with you online? Readerslegacy.com. You can get on the mailing list if you're hearing this before the launch on June 7th. That's the best place to go get hooked up. We've got a list we're building there that's already got about 15,000 people on it. And uh, if it's after June 7th, I'll be hanging out every day, all day at readerslegacy.com. Ken, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? If I was just talking holistically right now, I would say that, you know, our time here is limited and you don't know when your number is going to be called. I mean, my dad was 54 years old when a perfectly healthy man was uh, diagnosed with ALS and 18 months later he was dead. Life is short. Go out there and live magically and work hard and, you know, don't worry about your situation today. Experience this planet and experience life and make a difference. Actually, come out to the Reader's Legacy Writers Conference and get started on your next book. The world's waiting for it. Oh, well said. Ken, we really appreciate your time and best wishes to Reader's Legacy and the Reader's Legacy Writers Conference. Just thank you so much and enjoy Cabo. Thank you. Break 
breakthroughs don't happen. You make them happen. If somebody wants something more in their lives or wants more for themselves in their lives, it's going to take unadulterated determination. You have to first decide what you want to be good at and then put your blinders on, get an amazing mentor, study the art, and go out and make a boatload of mistakes. Podcast Movement 2015 is coming to Texas this summer, and we want you to be there. Join over 1,000 current and aspiring podcasters at the world's largest podcaster conference. Featuring Sarah Koenig of Serial, Roman Mars of 99% Invisible, Pat Flynn, Aisha Tyler, Lou Mangello, John Lee Dumas, and over 50 other speakers. All that's missing is you. Learn more and register now at podcastmovement.com. 